This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. As, you, uh, as you're sitting down, if you could open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Um, this is an introduction to the book of Acts, strangely enough, out of the book of Mark. We mentioned at the end of last year that we were going to teach through the book of Acts this year, and so I'm going to start that formally uh, next Sunday. Um, but I wanted to preach a, um, a message here that would stir our hearts uh, to faith. So this is, uh, I was planning on starting Acts today, but then in December and over the Christmas holidays, I was thinking more and more about uh, the subject of faith and really the importance of faith, even as we crack open a book like Acts and start working our way through it. Uh, because without faith, you can just relegate it all to history. It is historical. Uh, but faith is what uh, encourages us to, uh, to say, Lord, do it again in our day. May it be in our day. There's unique things that happen in Acts, I understand. But, um, but to pray, Lord, you are real and you are active. Would you do it again in our day? And so because of that, I wanted to speak about faith. And that's what I'm going to do this morning from Mark 5. Um, this is a time of the year where we all have a fresh start. We all have a clean slate. Uh, people are making New Year's resolutions, starting the new year off right, and um, that, that's a good thing. I'm not negative or down on that at all, uh, but here's the reality is that most of the New Year's resolutions just don't last. They just don't last, um, you know, unless you just set some totally attainable goal. I have had a little Debbie Nutty Bar every day of 2013, so I'm maintaining that goal, but other goals I'm not so good at already. Uh, so sometimes we just don't stick with them. Um, I read a study that said about 12% of New Year's resolutions are kept. Now, I don't know how they did the study, and, uh, but that's like one in eight. So I suppose if you set eight resolutions, maybe you'll keep one of them or something like that, or every eighth person keeps them all. I don't know how it works, but about 12%, and that, that's probably true. And I, I was thinking about that and thinking, why is it that we start off the year excited about some new idea or plan or whatever, and then it just, we quickly fall away and don't maintain it as a lifestyle so often. And I think one of the reasons is, maybe not the only one, but one reason is, is that we tend to set resolutions and make goals with a horizontal view and not a vertical view. We, we, we exclude God and reference to God and direction from God oftentimes in our resolutions. And in fact, I think we sometimes ask the wrong question. The question we might ask is something like this. Well, where do I want to change this year? How, how do I want to be different? What do I want uh, my life to be different like in this year? As opposed to asking a question like this, where in my life do I need to encounter God this year? That's a vertical question. Where do I need God to change me this year? Where am I desperate for God? What part of my life needs to be touched by Him? What am I facing right now that only God can change? So that if I really did keep the resolution generally for the next year, at the end of the year the story wouldn't be, wow, I was disciplined. 
though that's important. Wow, I worked my plan, though that's important. Wow, I was accountable and did it, though that's important. But the story would be this, God changed me. I encountered the living God, and He made a difference in me. See, the question is, what area of my life do I need to throw myself at the feet of Jesus and cry out in desperation, change me, oh God? Where do I need to come to an end of myself and say, God, rescue me? Because that's what he is, a rescuer. That's what Savior means. A Savior is one who rescues. So where do I need my life to encounter the Savior? Where do I need my circumstances and my heart to be met by the Savior? Where do I need my weakness and my desperation to collide with the Almighty God? That's the question. Maybe you're here today and you say, well, I don't really sense that sort of need in my life. Then that's your need. If you don't sense, and if I don't sense today, areas of our lives where we are desperate for God, then that is the area of need. Oh God, help me see my need and meet me in my place of need. Lord, shatter my misconceptions of you and me. Lord, knock me off my comfortable chair where I think I'm just kind of cruising along in life and show me where I am at need and show me how you meet that need and meet me. Desperation, do we know anything about that? How about desperation for our church? Where do we need God to encounter us and change us as a church? That's why I'm excited about going through the book of Acts, because when we crack open the book of Acts and start reading, and we start looking at our own lives, I suggest we don't start looking at everyone else's life in the church, but we start looking at our own lives, and we start looking at our church, I think what we're going to all find is there's this tremendous gaping hole between our reality and what we see God doing in the early church, between our experience of the Holy Spirit in recognizable ways and what we see God doing in the early church, between our boldness for Christ and the boldness of the early church. And that gap is meant to show us our need and to run to Christ in our need and to watch him meet our need and to change us. See, desperation is a breeding ground for faith. And people who aren't desperate aren't running to Christ. We're running somewhere else. We're doing something else. And the passage we're about to read today is two stories of two people that are desperate for God and they meet him. And that's why I wanted to start the year with this because this stirs what stirs my faith. Uh, towards God. I've read this passage at a number of times at like the new year. I think I've even preached on it in the new year before, long ago in a galaxy far away somewhere. I think I remember doing that. Um, But I want to look at it today and consider this story, these two stories from Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. Then we're going to pray and then we're going to walk verse by verse through this and ask that the Lord would reveal himself to us in a fresh way. Verse 21, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, 
And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your power and for your merciful and gracious response to meet people in their time of need, to touch people in their desperation, to change people when they've come to the end of themselves. And Lord, we pray that we would all recognize ourselves today as those people, but more importantly, we pray we would recognize you as the almighty God who is here to change lives, to touch hearts, to heal bodies, to encourage souls. Lord, would you please, please move by your Holy Spirit's power and speak through this word, this scripture to us today and change our perceptions of you and in turn change our hearts. Lord, I ask you to fill me with the Spirit and give me strength to proclaim your word faithfully to the people gathered here. In Jesus' name, amen. These are two stories that are interspersed together. We get one story about this guy whose daughter's dying, and then we get this interruption of a lady who has a health problem, and then we go back to the original story of the man whose daughter is dying. You see, there are two stories that are woven together, and they, they're stories about two very different people. We're going to see this in a moment. They're socially extremely different people. One is an insider 
popular, well thought of. The other is an outcast, outsider, anonymous. One is given, is named by name, one is not. Uh, and so there are two different social strata. And uh, so they're very different, but they're, they're included in the story together because they're very similar. First of all, this is historically accurate. Uh, this, this is what really happened. Um, but he's writing the story. He could have separated them. He's writing the story together because they reveal a common theme, and that is they are two very different people who have encountered tremendous desperation. And in their desperation, they have run to Jesus. Actually, they both throw themselves down at his feet. And in their desperation, they find God Almighty intervening into their lives and changing their lives by his mercy and by his grace. And so there is a common theme, desperate people meeting Jesus, who is the Lord of impossible situations which is what we find here. He is the Lord who has revealed himself into impossible situations. He is the Lord over sickness, and he is the Lord over death. Well, the story begins with this guy named Jairus. It says in verse 22, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. So we we meet this guy, and he is a synagogue ruler, a synagogue leader. He is a man of prestige. In this day, life centered around the synagogue. That was the common place where everybody sort of did their life. And so a leader in the synagogue was someone who was a leader in the community. He's probably wealthy. That would be a typical synagogue ruler. He's influential. He has power. He has clout. He is well-respected. He's the kind of guy when there's this crowd, you know, Jesus has crossed to the other side of the, the sea. He's beside the sea. He's the kind of guy when he comes walking along the shore to Jesus, the crowd would probably split. Oh, Jairus is here. Make room. He wants to talk to Jesus. He's given a name. If you think about it, it's very rare that we get a name of someone who encounters Jesus. Uh, you know, you get blind Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus. There's a few times we get a name. But usually it's a boy who is demon-possessed. Or it is a friend who is sick on a pallet, and they lower him down a roof, you know, through a roof to meet Jesus. Or it's crowds of hungry people that he feeds. Um, it's usually this sort of thing. We don't get their name, but Jairus is an important individual, he's a well-known individual, and he's actually named in the Scripture. And so he comes to Jesus, and he has no problem approaching Jesus. Here's a contrast. He comes in the open, the crowd splits, he comes right to Jesus, he addresses Jesus, he doesn't come secretively like the woman does. He falls down, it says that he... he uh, comes to Jesus, he falls at his feet, verse 23, he implores, that is, he begs him earnestly. He sincerely begs Jesus, my little daughter is at the point of death, come lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. He comes with tremendous faith in the midst of his desperation. He, he knows that Jesus can heal. He says, if you'll just come with me, if you'll come to my house and you'll lay your hands on her, Everything will change. She will be healed. She will 
experience your power. So he is, he's desperate, he humbles himself, even though he's a man of prestige, a wealthy man, an intelligent man, he, he throws off all the rules of decorum. He throws off all the normal protocol, and he's just falling at the ground, and he's groveling at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because he's desperate. Desperate people run to God. Desperate people don't fear man, don't care what other people think. Desperate people come to Jesus and lay out their case and plead for help. No one else can help him. He cannot help himself. And so he comes to Jesus with desperation. He doesn't stand coolly by. He doesn't collect himself. He doesn't worry about any of that. He just falls at Jesus' feet. And can you imagine the encouragement, verse 24, and he went with him. When Jesus says, sure, I'll come to your house. Sure, I'll save your daughter. How exciting that must have been for him. He's going to actually come. He's going to actually heal her. He's going to rescue my daughter. I've never been in this man's shoes. Some of you have. I've never been at the place where one of my children is at death's door. That's what he says there. She's about to die. I don't think there's any more desperate situation for a person than to see one you love and to feel completely incapable of helping them and crying out to God in need. So Jesus says, I'll come. So it's got to be, yes, let's go. And they start moving. There's a great crowd, verse 24, that follow him. They're, they're coming all around him. And in the middle of this situation, there's an interruption. There's an interruption from a woman. There's a woman who approaches him. Verse 25, she's, she's coming stealthily in the crowd. She's not named. She's unknown. Verse 25, a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. This is a description that we can read over quickly, but it describes someone in dire straits. Here's this woman's condition. The book of Leviticus makes clear that a person is unclean, a woman is unclean uh, in this type of situation. It doesn't say what kind of bleeding, but it's probably some type of uterine bleeding that she's experiencing, and it cannot be solved after 12 years of seeking medical help. And so in this condition, a, a woman is unclean. Not only is she unclean, which means she would be forbidden from going to the temple and you know, worshiping in the court of women or whatever, but she would be, um, she'd be in a position where anyone she touched became ritually unclean. And so she would have to separate herself from others because anyone she touched would be unclean. Matter of fact, the the scripture shows that they would have to uh, bathe and launder their clothing to be uh, ritually clean to go worship themselves. So she's an outcast. She would be something like a leper, not because if you encountered her, you would get her physical condition. That wouldn't be the issue. But it would be that you would be ritually unclean. So she's a woman who's separated Relationally, Not only that, but she has sought medical help, and it says she's only gotten worse. She's exhausted all of her human resources, and it says she spent all she had. So she's tried everything humanly possible, and it didn't work. She spent all her money. She's broke. She's isolated. She's separated from fellowship. Anyone she touches could equally become unclean. She's like a leper. In her life, she suffered tremendously. She is hopeless. But 
Verse 27 says, She had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. For she said, If I touch his garments, I will be made well. So she hears about Jesus. And that changes everything for her. When she hears about Jesus, she realizes she must get to Jesus. What does she hear? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but she must have heard something like this. This man can heal sick people. This man can heal impossibly sick people. This man is compassionate to the outsider. This man welcomes the unclean. This man does not rebuke and push away the brokenhearted, those whose lives are threadbare, who are wasting away like her. This man welcomes them. This man is not like the Pharisees who's, who, is, who are putting on requirements that people can't manage. This man is welcoming and loving. She hears something that causes her to go against all standards of protocol, for she pushes herself through the crowd unannounced, for everyone she touches is becoming unclean. And she's going to go to the rabbi, the master, God himself, and her uncleanness is going to touch pure holiness. She's going to pursue him and touch him because she says, if I touch his garments, I'll be made well. Listen, that view is more magic than sound doctrine. There was a view, a superstitious view of the day, that if someone was a healer, that even the healing power resided in their garments. And so she has this, well, she has this sort of immature faith. It's not developed. She wouldn't pass a theology test on the sovereignty of God or something like that. She is just a desperate woman who has a faith that, that probably we'd be uncomfortable with. It's a bit, it's a bit uh, superstitious if I just touch his garment. I mean, it's a bit pagan almost. And, and many of us would look at her if we encountered her. I mean, I'm concerned what my response would be to her. It probably wouldn't be in the first place to commend. It would probably be to adjust. That's many of us. We would want to adjust her theology. She's sort of got, she's literally got to name it and claim it theology. She says verbally, if I touch him, I will be healed. No, if, no, not, not if I touch him. If I touch his garments, I will be healed. This is not model doctrinal faith. This is messing with us. This is, this is, well, this is somebody getting something they don't deserve because she doesn't have it all figured out. She doesn't know it all. She hasn't read the same systematic theology that you read. She hasn't been to the same... She doesn't have the same podcasts to listen to that you do. She's not doctrinally sound. She's desperate. And while I'm not for lowering doctrinal standards, and while I'm not advocating ignorant faith by any means whatsoever, and and I'm not promoting word of faith kind of theology, I am saying this, that when someone's desperate and they know Jesus is who he says he is and that he's their answer and they come crying out for an encounter with him in his mercy, in his mercy, he is found meeting them frequently. It is those who are crossing every T and dotting every I and standing at a distance with a cool, 
intellectual, sober, measured analysis of everyone else that are on the outsides in the gospel. That's the Pharisees. It is frequently the broken, the hurting, the ignorant, the desperate, who I don't know at all, but I know he's real, and I'm coming to him. Those are the people that encounter Jesus. Those are the people, and it's not an either-or. One can be astute doctrinally and biblically knowledgeable and still desperate. That's the goal. We can have both. But she probably has a bit of a, a, bit of a mystical faith when she's just going to touch garments and healing power is going to be transmitted through the garments is what she thinks. So Jesus stops. Uh, well, actually, she's healed. Verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried, and she felt in her body that she's healed. So she encounters Jesus. She's actually healed. And then in a very interesting verse, verse 30, Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. So God, the, Jesus is God, God the Father, somehow heals this lady through the power of the Spirit. He sees that power has gone out from him. He immediately turns to the crowd and says, Who touched my garments? And the disciples are there with a more informed faith to sort of correct him, which is always much appreciated to correct God. His disciples, verse 31, said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you and you say, Who touched me? I mean, this is condescending. Jesus saying, who touched me? There is people pressing all around him, pressing all around him. So it's a good thing we've got the disciples there, as they're known to do, to adjust Jesus. Jesus, what kind of question is that? What kind of question is that? Of course, there's people all over. What do you mean, who touched you? We've got hundreds of people that have touched you. What are you even talking about? I mean, they're probably making, he's stopping and asking about who touched him. We've got a 911. We've got a little girl that is dying. It's the time for the sirens to be going off. I, I perceive this as, have you ever seen one of those scenes where you have like an ambulance moving very slowly through a crowd of people and vehicles and there's a jam and he's trying to just barely go? That's how I see Jesus. Everybody's crammed and they're trying to get to this guy's house and Jesus is stopping and asking what the disciples perceive to be an ignorant question. And so it's a real contrast between I'm going to touch, there's power in the garment there's a real contrast for the person who's ignorant that's encountering God and the person that should know Jesus should be saying, I don't know, but whenever he asks a question, there's a good reason. I don't know, how can we help assess that? What do you mean, what touched you? What, what, what do you want us to do? That's the appropriate response. So here we have this contrast between the disciples and this, this uh, sort of superstitious lady who knows enough about Jesus to believe in him but still doesn't have it all right. So what happens? Well, uh, he looks around, he ignores them, he looks around, and the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. What does that mean? I don't think she just said, it was me. Oh, okay, that was the end of it. She falls down. She is fearful. She is tr Why is she trembling? Because she has just rendered the rabbi unclean. She's come and touched him. She's, that's why she snuck up on him. That's why she doesn't, she doesn't have the respect. She can't clear the crowd. You know, she didn't have the all-media pass like Jairus is to come on up and talk to Jesus. She's just working her way through there. And she has rendered him unclean and everybody else. So she just, she, she knows he's good. She knows she's been healed. But why is he asking? Is he going to correct her? Is he going to rebuke her? What's he going to do? And so she's fearful. She's trembling. 
And she tells him the whole truth. What's the whole truth? Well, I touched you, and this is this, just what we read here. For 12 years. For tw- How does Mark know this? Because she said it. For 12 years, this has been my situation. This is what I've gone through. This is what my life's been like. And it's probably not a real quick thing. It's probably not like, well, yeah, here's... Jesus, let me just give you the headlines. Like, okay, I had this situation for 12 years and saw a lot of doctors and you healed me. She's crying and trembling. Have you ever talked to someone like that? She's shaking. She's blubbering. She's crying. She's a mess. Things don't come out real quickly like that. She's telling her story and she's overwhelmed. So what are you feeling like if you're Jairus right now? Uh, This lady has suffered for 12 years. Can we hold this about 30 minutes or so? Because my daughter's dying. And if you don't get there, Jesus, and put your hands on her, she's not going to make it. So this lady's telling her story and going on and fearing and trembling. And look what Jesus says to her, verse 34. Daughter. Oh, that's relationship. Daughter. He's speaking to her as a father to a child. This is a relational statement. You came to touch my garments to heal your body. You're getting more than that. There's a relational type of language, a welcome here. Daughter, your faith has made you well. If you read that story and read that statement, that, that will, well, that tweaks me when I read that. Because I don't think her faith was great at some levels intellectually, but the heart of her faith was right on. The heart of her faith was right on. And so through the vehicle of faith, she received wellness from Jesus. And he says, go in peace and be healed of your disease. The word peace is the word we we know. It's the word shalom. And it doesn't mean just go and I hope you don't have any conflict. That's part of it. But it means something more than that. One commentator on Mark, David Garland, uh, he, he said this of this word, uh, shalom. He said that it covers wholeness, well-being, prosperity, security, friendship, and salvation. He's saying, daughter, the one I'm speaking to tenderly, affectionately, relationally, not lady, not hey lady, hey woman, but daughter. Salvation. Go in salvation and be healed. Go in security. Go in peace. Go in wellness, not only of your body, but of your soul. You came just thinking you're trying to get a healing by touching a robe. You've encountered the living God. You're not in trouble. You're not in trouble for doing the wrong thing and skipping the protocol. You are, well, you're saved. You're rescued. You met Jesus. Because of the simplicity and the purity of your faith, you've received the Lord here is what happens. See, he may have very well said more to her. You know, we would get one quote. He may have said more to her than that, but we know he at least said this. Be healed of your disease. Why does he stop and have this dialogue with her? There's an emergency going on. Well, first of all, there's no emergencies for God because we're going to find out, hey, if you're late and she dies... So what's the difference from him? What's the difference if he heals someone or raises someone for the dead? It's, it requires no more energy from God. He didn't, oh, Jesus got to have a little more faith for that one. He's God. He created everything with the word of his power. He can raise this girl up. So he's not worried. It's not really an emergency for him. 
But I think he does it for two reasons. One is he does it for the woman. He doesn't want her to slink in and just get her healing and run off. He wants her to encounter himself. He wants her to know God. He wants to communicate love to her. I mean, is that the kind of God you know? When you think of God, do you think of the kind of God who in, who in, in a vast crowd would single you out in all of your imperfection and all of your misunderstandings and all of your desperation would single you out and put his eyes on you and relationally communicate his care and his love and his welcome to you. Not just to the lady in the Bible, not just to the person on the row in front of you, but you. Do you know and believe in a God who would encounter you that way, who loves you that way, who singles you out? This shows the tenderness of Christ, the tenderness of Christ to the outsider, the mercy of Jesus to the one who didn't really follow everything just right, but who knew that she was desperate and knew that she needed God. Do you serve that kind of God who in your desperation knows would stop everything, even the emergencies and the big things happening, would stop everything to look to you and share his love with you? That's the kind of God. So he does it for the woman, I think. But secondly, he does it for Jairus, because this is an object lesson. Jairus is just about to get some very bad news. And this is an object lesson that's going to that's stir his faith. I mean, if the woman had snuck in, touched him, and left, then Jairus wouldn't have perhaps had the faith that he would, having seen Jesus heal this person. So what happens? Verse 35, while they're speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? You're being a bother to him. It's too late. It's too late. He wasn't talking to that lady over there, you know. It's too late. So Jesus overhears them saying it's too late. Don't bother him. And Jesus inserts himself and loves Jairus. And what does he say to him? Do not fear, only believe. It's one of the most common commands uh, in the Gospels is do not fear. Do not fear. God is in control. God not only has power, but he's demonstrating he's compassionate, he's loving, he's welcoming to those who want him and trust him. And so he says, let's go, basically. They go on. He allows no one with him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So he gets out of the crowd. They just go on. He comes to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, verse 38, and Jesus saw a commotion. People are weeping. They're wailing. So in, the, in this time, people, when they died, when someone died, they would actually hire mourners. There was actually something they did. And so you would have them come in and they would mourn for a certain amount of time. They would cry. They would wail and that uh, sort of thing. So uh, he, they're there and he comes in and he says, hey, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. The mourners did. They moved from weeping to laughing really quickly. They're not the most authentic here. They're, they're weeping that the girl's dead, and then they're mocking God in the same sentence. But he put them all outside and took the child's father, who's already seen a miracle, and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. The mockers won't see God move. They won't see what God actually does here. It is the cynic, it is the arrogant, critical, person who is critical of God, whose eyes will be blinded oftentimes from the work of God. They don't get to come in and see what 
happens. Now, if they stuck around, they'll see this girl up and walking around at some point, but they don't see what happens. It is those who are desperate. It is those who trust God that encounter him and see him. We distance ourselves from God when we are cynical or giving in to unbelief. And our eyes are open when we come in humble desperation, crying out to God. So they see what happens. He takes her by the hand. He says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Yeah, I'd say so. They're immediately overcome. This little girl who's dead is now up walking around. He charges them that no one should know this. In the Gospel of Mark, there is this regular occurrence where Jesus is, does, not want, uh, does not want the people to define his Messiahship. So certain things he's doing, he's sort of keeping to the disciples and doesn't allow everybody to see it so that people prematurely uh, come to him and promote him as the kind of Savior they want him to be. And he doesn't just go tell everybody this so that everybody shows up and everybody just wants him to raise their dead relatives as well and doesn't want him for who he is. So he says, keep it quiet, and then he told them to give the girl something to eat. I love that human touch. This really happened. She's real. Like, she's been dead, and like death kind of makes you hungry. She's up and alive. You know, when you're resuscitated, nothing works up an appetite like a resuscitation from death. That's what, I'm, that's what I've experienced in my ministry. No, I've never, never raised anybody from the dead. Uh, some people have died listening to me, but I've never uh, raised anybody from the dead. I've certainly put people to sleep, that's for sure. But uh, so he, you know, he's like, hey, everybody's so amazed. Here's a practical need. The girl's hungry. Can somebody get up and make her a sandwich? I mean, this is a, I love the humanity and the heart and the compassion of Jesus. He's concerned that the little girl gets a meal. And uh, that kind of thing matters. And so he cares for her. She's 12 years old. Interestingly, that's how long the woman had suffered with the issue of blood, isn't it? The, the, uh, the discharge of blood that she had. So this girl's whole life, the woman had been sick. And the woman is healed, and you know, minutes or we don't know how far it was, minutes or hours later, this girl is brought back to life. It's a glorious, glorious revelation of Jesus. Him just demonstrating his... But nothing in Mark at this point has happened this powerful. Someone being raised from the dead. And so these two people in crisis situations, very different walks of life, come in desperation and they meet Jesus. And Mark records this and the Holy Spirit reveals to us through this that our God is a God who invades impossible situations, who delights to show his strength to broken people, be they rich or be they anonymous, be they welcomed and popular in the life of the party or be they outcast. Both situations, Jesus is at work. He's at work. He is answering the cries of people who, in this case, both happen to be on the ground. It says she threw herself at his feet, too. They're on the ground, desperate for God, crying out to God. They've exhausted their human resources, and they're looking to him. And there's people in this room today, you say, I'm facing crisis myself. I mean, maybe you don't have a child at death's door, like this guy did. But you have some type of intense trial in your life, and the clock is ticking. This guy, the clock is ticking on him. My daughter's about to die. The clock is ticking on him, and he can do nothing about it. And there's people in this room, the clock is ticking on you. There's some challenge you're facing, and you cannot fix it. 
And Jesus reveals himself as the one who intervenes to those who turn in desperation to him. To those who come, who, who come on their knees, I'm, I'm not speaking literally, but on their knees convinced of his ability to help. This woman is convinced of his ability to help. She doesn't have a fully formed view of Jesus, but she knows enough to come in desperation. This man may not have a fully view, uh, developed view of Jesus, but he knows enough to come, and he knows enough to say, if you'll put your hand on my daughter, she'll get out of the bed. He knows that much. And he leans into Jesus. He relies on him. He cries out to him. Now listen, I'm not talking about in this passage that we can just dictate to God what he should do. I'm not saying that we can just write our ticket with God and tell God what he's going to do for us. That's, that's not faith, that's presumption. And that's offensive to God. And God's not going to be manipulated by our dictates to him. He is sovereign and we are not. And so we want to avoid the ditch of presumption. We don't want to fall in the ditch of presumption where we dictate to God on our terms what he's going to do to serve us. That's not what this passage is about. But there's another ditch, and many of us are far more likely to find ourselves in that ditch. And that's the ditch of unbelief. That's the ditch of unbelief. We don't want to avoid so much people that have misguided faith and selfish faith. We don't want to avoid them so much that we have no faith, no unbelief. We're not coming desperately saying, God, please do this. I believe that you can do this. See, the guy, Jairus doesn't dictate to him what he must do. He doesn't say, you must come and heal my daughter. What he says is, if you will come and you lay your hands on her, she will be well. He's just saying, Jesus, if you will do this, I know you have the power to do what no one else can do. That, that, that's, that's, that's calling out to God in desperation and presenting a need and believing him for it and leaving the results to him. I love that. I love that. And, and, the, and the challenge for me and for us is that some of us would just be on the other side. You know, we'd be quickly wanting to correct her. We'd want to post a blog post on the pagan faith of this woman who just believed in touching garments and how that's all wrong and slice that up and where this lady's got it wrong or she doesn't follow protocol. She's just in it for herself. She's not there glorifying God. She's just there trying to get something from him. It'd be easy to critique her, but the reality is she encounters God. While a bunch of people who know all about him are standing on the outside not meeting him at all. That is the irony of it. That is the irony. That he welcomes those who come in desperation, who don't have it all figured out, but who are confident in Jesus and confident in his power, and know that he is able. Some of us here have endured things for a long time. Maybe you haven't endured exactly what she's endured, but you've endured. And the Lord's calling you to him. Some of us in the room are wondering, it's first of the year, everybody's you know, evaluating or looking at their lives and you know, taking inventory. You know, maybe you look at your finances and you say, man, I... Will my financial circumstances ever change? Everybody talks about getting on a budget, and you're going, I can't even make my bills. I can't even keep up. Maybe you've got relational challenge. You say, here I am, it's, 20, it's January 2013, another year, and I'm single. 
I thought by now I'd be married. I'm single. Another year, we thought we'd have a child by now. These are things that, were endure, that, that feel like a great endurance like this lady experienced. A great desperation. Maybe you are married, but you say, will this be the year? I mean, how long will my husband not lead? How long will my husband be delinquent in leading me and leading our family? And if he's here today, he's thinking, how long will she not support me and encourage me and help me, perhaps? When when will our marriage change? Will my relatives ever come to Christ? Will my kid ever come to Christ? Will my my parents ever meet Jesus? They're getting old. Will they ever meet the Lord? Will I ever be healthy? Will I ever overcome that area of sin that just plagues me? Here I am again. Last year I said I'd stop doing that, and here I am. Same thing. Nothing's changed in the last year. Will I ever sense the presence of God like I once did? I mean, there was a time when I encountered God. His word was alive to me. The spirit was speaking to me. I couldn't wait to get to church and encounter God as we sang and hear the word of God. Will those days ever come back? Because that's like a distant memory for me right now. Will I ever have a soft heart? Will I ever experience God like I used to? Will the darkness ever leave me? I just feel depressed, and and I'm embarrassed to even say it because Christians are all supposed to be happy, clappy, and everybody looks like they've got their life together around here. I don't want to be like the one person. Well, that's just not true, first of all. But will this be the year that, you know, the darkness goes away? Will I ever have close friends? I mean, I see people talking. It looks like they have real fellowship. looks like they're really engaged. Well, I have real friends. Maybe I just need to go to a new church or a new group or get some different friends or move or start a new job or whatever. Maybe it's just that. Maybe you don't have a crisis like that that's a long-term hopelessness. But where are you aware? Maybe it's something recent. Where are you aware of an aching desperation in your heart? If this passage teaches anything, it says run to Jesus. Don't run away from him. Don't evaluate. Don't wonder. Run to Christ. Throw yourself at his feet and in desperation say, God, I believe that you can change me. I believe that you can change my circumstances. And if you don't change my circumstances, I believe that you can sustain me. I believe that you can give me contentment and faith and joy in my suffering. I believe you can alleviate my suffering if it's your will. I believe that you can, if it's not your will, give me joy and patience in the process. But I believe you're going to do something and I need you to do something. Lord, you must do something for me. Please, I throw myself at your feet. Maybe it's something that you just need God to encounter. I was just thinking at this time of the year, maybe there's something where you just say, this, I'm just stuck, but I'm done being stuck. I'm running to Jesus. And if I'm going to remain stuck, I'm stuck at his feet. If I'm going to be stuck, I'm going to be stuck hanging on to him. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's like, I am tired of hiding my faith. This is the, I'm going public with my faith. I'm coming out with my faith in Christ at my job or my school. I'm not going to hide this anymore. I'm tired of living in fear. I want the Spirit of God to give me boldness. And Jesus, I'm holding on to you until you do. 
Maybe this is a year where you say, I'm going to open my mouth. I, want, I don't want to be gripped by the fear of man. I want to be free. Jesus died and rose to set me free. This is the year I'm going to, if you're married, if you're a husband, this is the year I'm going to lead by God's grace. I have a desperation. If I'm going to lead my family, God has got to change me. God has got to help me. God has got to give me a heart. God has got to give me wisdom. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm getting on my face before God and I'm crying out, help me. Help me to love my wife as Christ loves the church, to lead my kids, to lead them in the word, to be an example. Maybe you say, well, I'm just, I just don't connect, I don't fit, I don't know relationally. Hey, I'm tired of that. I'm running to Jesus and I'm saying, I'm investing my life in my small group this year. I am all in. I don't care if anybody else comes. I'm at the feet of Jesus. I am investing my heart. I'm investing my life. I'm walking with him. I'm, throwing, I'm playing my card. I am in. I'm cutting options. I'm cutting, wondering about this, wondering about that. I am in. And God, this is uncomfortable and I don't know, so you come with me. <laughs> I need you relationally. I'm going to reach out. Maybe this is the year that you want to be giving of your resources. Maybe you've had a heart to do that. Say, I'm tired of monitoring everything in fear. I want to monitor everything to know where I'm at so that I can divest myself. I want to, maybe it's caring for the poor. Maybe it's taking a step of faith to reach out to those in need. I don't know what it is, but it's just, I am, I'm going to be free this year. By God's grace, I'm throwing myself at his feet and saying, Lord, free me from my greed, my fear, my anxiety over my finances. I'm just trusting you with open hands. Maybe that's the area for you. Maybe it's an area of purity, sexual purity, sexual thought, your, your mind's purity. Maybe it's that. We just got to throw yourself at the feet of Christ and trust him this year. Maybe it's something in your job. I, I don't know. Maybe it is. Being in the Word of God. We're going to talk about this at Man to Man this week. But it's not just, what did I do different this year? I got a chart to check off. I'm all for charts. That's great. But a chart ain't going to do it. It's, well, I got a one-year plan. Now I've got every day tells me what to read. That is a good idea. I've done that. I recommend that. But just because it takes the Bible and breaks it up into January 6th and January 7th, that's not going to magically empower you to read the Bible. It's a great, it's great. I've got accountability. I've got someone asking me this year, how are you doing? That can be very helpful. But what we need is we need to see that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. Lord, I'm so desperate, I can't make it without your word. I can't live the life you want me to live without your power changing my heart. Lord, I can't hunger for you if you don't give me a hunger. So I'm throwing myself at your feet. I got my chart in hand. I got the email of my accountability partner. I got my one-year Bible. Get whatever you're going to get. But I am at your feet, desperate, saying, God, give me a hunger for you. Make the things of the world that steal my joy and steal my time detestable to me. And make you attractive and glorious as you really are. Help me to see you as you are and hunger for you. Spirit of God, change my heart. And then those charts and friends can be a great tool to come alongside. But Lord, I've got to have you change my heart. That's it. Change my heart. How about for our church? Are we desperate? I just don't want to cruise. I just don't want to be a lazy boy chair. We've got to sit in the chair and prop back and kind of watch what's going on. We're okay. Everything's all right. 
We want to be desperate for God. We want to be saturated with the Spirit of God, crying out to God, Lord, do something miraculous in us and through us. Lord, help us to fear you and honor you and walk in unity and reach the lost and serve one another and serve those in need. Witness and give and care and listen and help and pray and encourage and bear burdens and correct and serve and all that happens in the life of a church. Help us to be that people. We need you. Sometimes we think about these things and say, well, yeah, if I saw something like that, I mean, surely, if I saw Jesus say to a dead person, get up, well, yeah, of course I'd trust the Lord then. It'd be a little bit easier. But here's the reality. We have something a lot better. It would be great to see a 12-year-old girl, a 12-year-old dead girl, get off the bed, but it's incomparably more glorious to see the Savior get out of the tomb. We've got something way better than this. See, as you read in the book of Acts and see what's happened, they're not all telling the story, hey, one time Jesus raised a dead girl. Maybe they told that story. Probably it's recorded. could be helpful. could be encouraging. could be something to look back for. But what you see in the book of Acts is what the new church is talking about, that the dead Jesus came back to life and that he ascended to the Father and that he ruled and reigned and that he poured out his spirit upon his people. See, we have an object lesson, as it were, that's much greater than what he had, than what they had. Jairus had an object lesson of a, a woman getting healed. The people who saw this, the disciples, had an object lesson of a gal being resuscitated and coming back to life. But she died. This girl grew up and died. I don't know when, but at some point she died. Jesus came back alive forever, defeating the power of sin, defeating the power of death, and that is what shows us that he is Lord over the impossible. These are great glimpses into the fact that Jesus invades impossible situations to show his power, but the ultimate picture and promise is his defeating sin and death and the devil and the flesh forever as he gets up out of the tomb in new resurrection life, in a resurrection body. This is the power that makes all the difference. And so if we know that he has done that for us, we can be confident that he'll meet us in all these other areas. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not along with him graciously give us all things? This is what he says. If you're worried about, does God love me? Is he going to meet my needs? What about these problems? What about the, the challenges, which are very real, that I'm facing? What about my suffering? What about my future? What about my circumstances? If you ever doubt that God is going to take care of those, look to an empty cross and look to an empty tomb and realize that he who did not spare his son, but gave him up, he died in our place for our sins as our substitute, will he not along with him graciously give you all things? He's done the huge deal. He's met your greatest need. Will he not take care of all these other things? So that's the promise. As wonderful as it is, we don't stop with a healed woman, and we don't stop with a resuscitated dead girl. We look to Jesus, who's the Lord of the impossible, and demonstrates that most clearly in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. So you can bring all your desperation, and I can bring all of my desperation. We can bring our need 
We can fling ourselves at his feet. We can blubber and cry like they were. We can desperately cry out as the dignified synagogue ruler did. We can lay our hearts out there knowing that God will not rebuke us. God will not reject us. God will not say, get that out of here. God will welcome the humble heart who comes in desperation. And he will intervene. And he will meet us. Because he's merciful. And he's gracious and he's kind. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.